So we're in the third and final week of our series, Scary Season, and we're saying this simple but powerful truth that fear is not a problem, that fear is not the problem, that fear is actually not a problem, but the problem is we tend to point our fear in all the wrong directions, that God created us with a sense of fear and with a sense and ability to sense fear, but we tend to point it in all the wrong directions and at all the wrong places. Here's what we said that week one, that the only thing to fear in life is being on the wrong side of holy God. The only thing to fear in life is being on the wrong side of holy God. That's what we've called the fear of the Lord, concerning ourselves primarily with aligning ourselves with him and his plans and his purpose. And when we do that, we actually have no reason to fear anything else or anything less. Then last week, we said we spent our time talking about facing our fear of failure. And we said the only failure we should fear is the failure to follow God. If we fear failure so much that we fail to follow God, then we have truly failed. And as we looked at the story of Joshua and Caleb, we saw that our faith allows us to see what fear can never see, that God is faithful and that he is bigger than what we fear every single time. Now, last week I showed you a list of the top 12 most common fears from a survey by therapists across the U.S. And last week we talked about how on that list of common fears, nine of the most common fears can trace their roots back to a fear of failure. Today, we're going to talk about the other primary place our fear can trace its roots back to. And today I want to talk about a fear that technically isn't on that list, but is all over that list. It's what the Bible calls the fear of man. If you look at that list, at least six of the 12 fears on that list can really easily trace uh, back to the idea of the fear of man. And here's how I define the fear of man. The fear of man is the fear that somehow someone we care about will be displeased with us, disappointed in us, or disapprove of us. Let me say that one more time. The fear of man is the fear that somehow someone we care about will be displeased with us, disappointed in us, or disapprove of us. And because we're afraid of that, we fear success. Success puts us into the spotlight, gets us more eyes on us. Maybe we have an image to uphold now. The fear of man causes us to fear rejection because rejection symbolizes someone's disapproval of us. Because of the fear of man, we fear other people's opinions. We simultaneously wonder and need to know what other people think of us and dread what other people might be thinking of us. Because of this, we fear saying the wrong things because somewhere along the way, we learned that saying the wrong thing would displease people you care about the most. We fear people thinking we're an imposter and don't know what we're doing because we think if they think if they don't think we know what we're doing, we won't be welcome in their circles. And finally, we fear commitment because to commit to a person and then to disappoint them or have them disapprove of us might just be too much for our people-fearing heart to deal with. Now, let me ask you a question. Anybody got any of that? Yeah, I think like a lot of us, if we're honest, maybe almost all of us, we deal with that at some point on some level. It may not be in every area of your life or in your relationships, but for you, it's certainly with your boss and your direct reports at work. In your mind, and rightfully in some ways, like you think they hold your financial future in their hands. And so you become an entirely different person around them. Your voice even changes and the way you speak changes. Your posture changes because you've got to please them and live up to their expectations of you in order to secure your financial future. Maybe it's not a boss, but it's a parent or a parent-in-law that you're still trying to win the approval of after all these years. And you haven't, for some reason, after all these years, you haven't figured out yet that either you already have it, but you don't feel it, or that you'll never have it, which says more about them than it says about you. 
Maybe you had a past romantic relationship and badly and it devastated you. So now every date, every second date, every romantic encounter, it feels like life or death and you've got to make it work somehow to avoid the pain of rejection. Again, maybe it's that one friend in the friend group who kind of seems to rule the friend group and you feel like if you don't please that one person, you're no longer going to be welcome in the group and you don't want to end up alone. So you figure out, you better figure out how to play along. So let me ask you again, anybody got any of that? Like, here's what the Bible says about the fear of man. Here's what the Bible says about the fear of man in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. It says, the fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Let me read that again, Proverbs 29, 25. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. In other words, the fear of man proves to be a snare or a trap in other translations. It proves to be a snare because it doesn't look like a snare or a trap to us at first glance or first look. It promises us something that we believe to be for our good, but ends up trapping us, entrapping us, snaring us, while never actually delivering on its promises. And here's why I believe that so easily and so often happens. The fear of man is a twist on the legitimate fear of of God. The fear of man is a twist on the legitimate fear of God. We were made to rely on God, to depend on God, to trust in God for everything for our today and for our tomorrow. The fear of man takes our mind and our eyes off of God as our source and our sustainer, and it convinces us that man, that woman, that people are our source and are our sustainer. So you think a boss controls your financial future when your finances are actually really truly in God's hands and you live to please a boss and you end up living to please a boss rather than please the one who actually controls your future. So you think you can't be a good parent if you never got your parents' approval. So you scrape and twist yourself to win your parents' approval when the only approval that truly matters comes from your heavenly Father, fear of man will prove to be a snare because it's a, it's a twist on the legitimate fear of the Lord that we are all built and designed to live with. But whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. Now, today we're going to take a look at a story of someone who was consumed by the fear of man. And I just want to let you know up front, this is not a story of a person who was consumed by fear and learned how to overcome it. This is the story of a person consumed by fear who eventually truly becomes consumed and devastated and destroyed by the fear of man. In literary and Taylor Swift terms, this is truly an anti-hero. This is someone who could have chosen to face the fear of man and move forward at any point along the way of life and instead chose the fear of man over the fear of the Lord. And just in case you don't think, the, re the reason I wanted to highlight this person's story is if you don't think the fear of man is a big deal, what we're about to see in the life of this man in the story, in the story, in the pages of the Old Testament, what we're about to see from this man is an absolutely destroyed life because he was so consumed by the fear of man. And if you end up consumed by the fear of man, I'm just telling you, this leads nowhere good and nowhere healthy. We're going to see what happens when we're consumed by the fear of man. And then at the end, we're going to come and learn together and learn how to truly face up to the fear of man and move past the fear of man. This man's name was Saul. His story takes place over the course of about 20 chapters in the Old Testament, so I'm not going to read the whole story to you. I'm going to give you the highs and the lows. Saul's story begins about 150 years 
after the Israelites go and take the promised land with Joshua and Caleb. They had been in the land for 150 years, never really settled it. They lived in the land. It had never really been theirs because they could never quite vanquish their enemies. And when they could, they couldn't stop fighting among themselves. So after years and years of fighting these losing battles, they start to demand a king from the prophets and from the judges, and especially from the prophet Samuel. Samuel goes to God and asks God what to do. And God tells him, well, I'll tell you what, Samuel, I know you feel like they've rejected you. They haven't rejected you as, as a prophet. They've rejected me as the king. Give them a king. Give them what they have asked for. Give them a king. So Samuel goes out to anoint a king, and he finds this man named Saul. We're told that Saul is handsome, and that he is strong, and that he is a full head taller than anyone in the kingdom of Israel. Samuel anoints him, and the Spirit of God comes on him. He goes and leads Israel to a massive victory over their enemies. He comes back, and everyone is excited about Saul. So Samuel sees this moment as the moment to reveal that Saul is God's chosen and anointed king over Israel. Samuel gathers everyone together. He gets everyone's attention, announces that there is going to be a new king of Israel, that he is going to anoint the king of Israel, decides to, begins to divide the, the clan by, by, by clans and by families and breaks it down and breaks it down. The king is going to come from these people and this people and this family and this family and this clan. And he breaks it down and he calls for Saul. And he calls for Saul. And the problem is, no one can find Saul. And here's what we're told Saul is doing when no one can find him. So they inquired further of the Lord in 1 Samuel chapter 10. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. Yes, he has hidden himself. He has hidden himself. He has purposely chosen to hide himself in the moment that he should be stepping into the spotlight. And here's the thing. The fear of man will keep you from walking in your anointing. The fear of man will keep you from walking in your anointing. Saul has been anointed by God, chosen by God to be king. He's physically gifted to be strong and taller than anyone in the kingdom. And yet when it's time for him to step into the spotlight, he wilts from the spotlight and he hides from the spotlight, not accidental, not he didn't know what was going on. He had intentionally hidden himself from this moment, from his crowning, from his anointing in front of everyone else. He had made it so that he could not be found in the moment where he should have been recognized as a king. In that moment, he shies away and steps back from his rightful place because what we didn't know about Saul, but we realized pretty quickly in this moment is Saul has a fear of man. And in this moment, his fear of man causes him to shrink back and to shrivel away from his anointing, from walking in what God has planned and prepared him for. And I'm just telling you, there are things in your life you are made for and you are gifted for. And if you're not careful and attentive, the fear of man will hold you back from walking in the calling and anointing of God. It may not be a kingship, but you will shrink back from being the dad that you are called and equipped to be. It may not be a national spotlight, but it'll be shrinking back in a moment with your coworkers where you have the opportunity to share your faith in Jesus with them, but you shrink back and shrivel up in that moment. Fear of man will keep you from walking in your anointing. It will keep you from walking in the purposes and the plans and the way and the will of God. It did for Saul from the very beginning. And if we're not attentive to it, if we're not willing to face up to it, it will in your life as well. 
Saul's story spirals on. This was about as good as things would ever get for Saul. A few months later, as he's leading the nation of Israel, there's an upcoming battle against Israel's foes. And while the prophet Samuel was alive and throughout most of Israel's history, there was an understanding. The king or the king's generals lead the army into battle. But before they go into battle, the prophet or the priest of the Lord would offer sacrifices and prayers to God. So Saul was about to lead the army into battle. He gathers this large, vast army. The only problem is Samuel is running late. Samuel gave him a time that he would be there, gave him a day that he would be there, gave him the time, like, I'll show up on this day, and that's when we're going to go. But Samuel is running late, like, like really late. Like everyone knows that Samuel is the reason for the holdup late. Like if they had watches back then, everyone would have been looking at them and, and seeing how late Samuel was late. That's how late Samuel was. And they're all getting ticked and frustrated and thinking about one leaving, wondering if Samuel's not coming to offer sacrifices, maybe it's because we're not even supposed to go into this battle. So Saul gets wind of what's happening among the troops, gets wind that people are talking about leaving, and he decides, ooh, the boys are getting pretty antsy. We got to do something here to keep the morale high. So Samuel decides to offer the sacrifices and the prayers to God on behalf of the army, on behalf of going into battle as they're about to do. Now, any bad movie writer could write this next scene. 1 Samuel chapter 13 tells us this in verse 10. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. Dun, dun, dun. Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the, at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. I felt compelled to win the favor of the men, to make sure that morale was kept high, to make sure that these guys that I had gathered together wouldn't leave. I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Here's the second thing that we have to know the fear of man will do. The fear of man will cause you to fulfill roles that you were never meant to fill. Just like it will keep you from shying, it will keep you shying away and keep you from stepping into what you were meant to do, the fear of man will also cause you to fill roles that you were never meant to fill. For Saul, the fear of losing his army caused him to step into a role as the prophet of God, as the judge of God, caused him to do what was only meant for one person, caused him as the king to take the role of a prophet. He was the king. He was never meant to be the prophet. Only one person in history was the prophet, the priest, and the king. His name is Jesus. It wasn't Saul. Saul was supposed to be the king, but never meant to be the prophet. And in this moment, because he's afraid of losing his army, because he's afraid of losing morale, because he's afraid of an opposing army, he chooses to step into a role that he was never meant to. To fill in almost the same way that fear of man causes us to miss our moment and not walk in our in our anointing. The fear of man will almost always bait us into filling some role that we are not made for and not called to. Sometimes this happens in a workplace where we end up working ourselves to death doing three people's jobs because achieving so much gets us so much applause, gets us a lot of pats on the back. But we're not made to work three jobs. This is how burnout happens. We work three jobs. I'm doing three people's work. I'm doing three people's work. And man, people are so happy with me. People are so happy with me. I'm dying inside. I'm tired all the time. But man, I'm so happy. Like, I'm, I'm so glad that people are happy with me. And we end up burning out because we are filling roles that we were never meant 
to fill. One person can never do the work of three people. And so we end up burning ourselves. Sometimes this happens in a home where a mom ends up being mom and dad because dad isn't really engaged with the kids. And mom doesn't want to come off naggy, you know, fear of man. So she just takes on the role of mom and dad. But mom can't really ever be dad. And so, and so we end up in, in, in this weird family dynamics where mom is trying to be dad, but mom can't really be dad because mom wasn't meant to be dad. She's trying to fill a role she was never meant to fill because the fear of man keeps her from wanting to come off as naggy and asking her husband to actually be an engaged dad, an engaged father. And so we end up, because of the fear of man, well, I, I don't want to stir the boat. I don't want to come off naggy. I don't want to come off any sort of way. So I'll just do both. And you were not meant to do both. We step into those, these roles, unfortunately, because we think we will lose something that people give us if we don't step into these roles. Maybe it's a peaceful home. Maybe it's a workplace where you get a whole lot of affirmation because of how much you accomplish. Could be a lot of different things. We step into these roles because we think if we don't, we will lose something that people give us. But there's always a cost to stepping into a role that you were not made for. There's always a cost to stepping into a role that you're not made for. For Saul, here's what it was to go on in 1 Samuel 13. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. See, there's more, there's more to come, but in this moment, the fear of man and what he might lose, I might lose my army, we might lose a battle, actually became the moment he began to lose the kingdom. I'm so afraid of losing my army in a moment that I actually end up losing the kingdom, all because I stepped into a role that, I was, that he was never meant to fulfill. And while we're trying to keep a, a, a peaceful home where we don't come off as naggy, sometimes we end up losing our children because we cannot fill both roles for our children. While we're doing, while we're doing like, oh, I got to do all this stuff at work to keep, to keep getting the approval and the affirmation and the praise of my bosses, we end up losing our health because we, we're doing so much that we can't possibly sustain it. We think we're going to lose something. We end up losing something bigger. Well, from here, things unravel more and more. Saul, after losing a bunch of men in his army, feels even more pressure militarily. So he commands a fast that no one in his army can eat any food at all until he has avenged himself on his enemies. Says that anyone who eats will be killed. A little while later, his son Jonathan and a companion break away from the pack and they attack an outpost of the Philistines that causes chaos to ensue, leading to a massive victory for the Israelites over their enemies. After their victory, Jonathan picks up a honeycomb, eats some honey, and all of the army looks at him like, what did you do? What did you, did you, what did you do? Your father hasn't lifted the fast. He said that anyone who eats would die. Boy, you done messed up. So Saul finds out and he confronts Jonathan and has one of those father-son conversations you hope you never have to have tells him he has to kill him for eating honey. Again, father-son conversations in the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, just a little bit different today. Son, I'm sorry you ate that honey. Now I have to kill you. I'm going to pull my sword and I'm going to chop your head off. Okay, like once again, once again, again, now, now interestingly here, Interestingly enough, the fear of man rears its ugly head in Saul's life in 1 Samuel 14. But the men said to Saul, should Jonathan die, he who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never, as surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground, for he did this today with God's help. 
So the men rescued Jonathan and he was not put to death. Then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines and withdrew to their own land. Now here's the thing. One more thing the fear, one more thing the fear of man will make you do is that the fear of man will make your word meaningless. It will make your word meaningless. Now, I am certainly not advocating here that Saul should have killed his son for eating honey. I think that's bad parenting. But in this moment, in this moment, everyone knew they could manipulate the king and that the king's word and his rule was compromised and meaningless. If God hadn't already removed his hand from Saul, this would be the day everyone looked at as the day that Saul's reign ended. Because when the whole kingdom knows the king won't keep his word, the king is toast and the kingdom is toast. Now here's the thing. Again, not advocating that, that, that Saul should have killed his son for this. Not advocating that at all. But I am advocating that sometimes it was that for Saul, it was known that Saul won't keep his word if the army threatens this, if the men threaten this, if the men convince him of this, that they could talk him out of doing what the king had said he was going to do. And for some of us, there is a parenting lesson here. Parents, some of you, Your fear of man is connected to your children. You have a deep need for them to like you. And whenever they get mad or yell at you or say they hate you, you fold like a cheap napkin. Your word, unfortunately, becomes meaningless because they know how to manipulate you and get you to back down. They know you're afraid of them. And so some parents out there today, I just want you, I just want to say this to you and I want to free you up. And you might think this makes me sound like a jerk. I don't, I don't know. They're your kids. They should fear you. You shouldn't fear them. They are your children. You are the adult. They should have a healthy fear of you. You should not have a fear of them. They should actually hate you from time to time. I mean, I was a youth pastor for a long time. I pastored teenagers for like 10 to 12 years. I heard so many stories of of teenagers who, I hate my mom, I hate my dad. Look, if you're doing it right, if you're setting healthy boundaries, if you're being consistent with with the rules, there will be moments because you're doing it right that your kids will think they hate you. And if you're doing it right, they will hate you for a moment and thank you later on. They will hate you for a moment and they will thank you later on. It's a sign that you're establishing boundaries, healthy boundaries, and that you're sticking to your guns. But if you have a fear of man that manifests itself in fear of your kids not liking you, I'm telling you, your words with your kids will become meaningless. Your parenting with your kids will will lack the juice that it needs. You need to have a fear of God that overcomes the fear of man when you're, of your children not liking you. I'm just telling you, if you don't, your parenting and your words with your kids will become meaningless. One final episode from the anti-hero Saul. The prophet Samuel gives Saul an assignment from God. Saul is to lead the Israelites to attack the Amalekites and avenge the harm done to Israel during the wilderness times. The assignment is very specific that he is to destroy everything and everyone. Nothing taken for themselves, everything destroyed in obedience to God. This is not a plunder mission. This is a destroy mission. So Saul goes and he wins the battle decisively. Israel wins the battle decisively. It's like, yay, God. Samuel gets word and he goes to congratulate Saul on his victory. While he's walking into the victorious camp, he passes the Amalekite king alive and held prisoner. He's like, hmm, 
I believe we told him to destroy everything and everyone. He sees the men of the camp dividing up the spoils of the best cattle and crops. He goes, hmm, I think I, I, think I told them they were supposed to destroy everything and everyone. So he basically, he's basically going, okay, I, I must not have been as clear as I needed to be on this. He goes to confront Saul, and Saul's like, hey, good to see you, bud. I did everything God commanded. And Samuel's like, the heck you did. The heck you did. Saul genuinely does not even see in this moment that he has been disobedient. His ears heard what Samuel had told him, but his head had heard the message and instructions that he wanted to hear. And we're very specifically told by Saul in this moment. You know, I thought the men deserved this. The men had gone into battle. Well, of course I would give them the best. Like, we took the best. Like, we destroyed most of it. We destroyed most of it. But I gave the men because I wanted them. Like, I was afraid of what they would do if we actually followed the Lord's command. I was afraid of what they would do. I was afraid of what they would say. I was afraid that they they didn't hear from God. I heard from God. And if I told them what God told them told them to do, I just didn't, I thought they would revolt against me. So I gave them the spoils and the best of the thing. We, we, we destroyed most of the people. We killed most people. We destroyed most of the, of the cattle. I just gave the men the best because they deserve it after all. And I was afraid that they would leave and they wouldn't come back to battle again if they didn't get to take something home with them. After being told that, Samuel tells Saul that God has removed his hand of blessing from Saul and sought out another. And because of this, Samuel will not honor God, honor, Samuel will not honor Saul in front of the men. After he says that, because Saul, who has to be liked by men, who has to be feared, you know, has to have the respect of the men, Saul goes to grab hold of Samuel and tears his cloak. In response, Samuel says, just as you have ripped my clothes, the Lord will rip the kingdom from you. And finally, here's the final thing fear of man will do. A fear of man will make you disobedient in your devotion to God. A fear of man will make you disobedient in your devotion to God. And sometimes it'll maybe even make us deceptive in our devotion to God. When you fear man more than you fear God, unfortunately, religion becomes a game to be played. When you fear man more than you fear God, you'll feel obedient while completely ignoring what God actually wants from you. You're going like, well, yeah, I read the Bible and pray. What more could God want? And God goes like, I actually told you to do all these other things. You'll feel obedient while completely ignoring what God wants from you. Saul was given explicit commands, but when looking at his soldiers said, ah, but the boys really want this and they deserve this. I know God said, but... And I know Samuel speak, you know, speaks for God, but I mean, like, is he? I mean, he's not in charge of the army right now. I'm in charge of the army right now. So here's what this looks like. Well, I know God called me to ministry, but people get laughed at for passing up the opportunities that I have in front of me. So, 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 so I'm gonna, I'll love God, I'll serve God, but I'm not going into ministry like God wants me to do because I know, I know what it looks like to pass up these types of opportunities, and people laugh at people who do that. I know God wants me to share the gospel with my neighbors, but I don't want to be labeled a weirdo in my community. Like, like, so I know what God wants, but I'm so afraid of what people will think of me if I do this that I won't do what I know God wants me to do because I'm more afraid of them than I am of God. A fear of man will always keep you from, from fully obeying God. Fear of man will make you disobedient and sometimes dishonest in your devotion to God. Now, 
I'd like to tell you that Saul figured this out and overcame it. Unfortunately, he didn't. He would lose his influence, lose his kingdom, lose his army, lose the affection of his family, very literally lose everything decision by decision, moment by moment, as the fear of man dominated his life and his mind. He died the anti-hero. But you don't have to. You don't have to. The question becomes, well, if we don't have to, what do we have to do differently than Saul did? Like, what do we do so that, so that our work doesn't become dominated by, the, by us doing three people's work? What do we do so that, like, I don't have to be mom and dad? What do we do so that I'm not constantly trying to win my, my boss's approval? And I'm not trying to constantly win my parents' or my in-laws' approval. What do we do so I'm not trying to constantly win the approval of my neighbors and my neighborhood and my coworkers? Like, what do we do so I'm not striving to win the approval of that one person who controls the friend group so I don't end up alone? What do we do so, so, so we can face that fear of man? Here's how we begin to, to face that fear and to overcome that fear. We acknowledge and we cling to the truth of who God is every day of our lives. Now, ironically, there's four verses that I'm going to read here in the, in the next couple, in couple moments. Three of these verses were written by Saul's successor, David, who saw Saul's fear of man and stepped in as the next king after, Saul's, after Saul lost his life and lost the kingdom. And here's, what, here's, here's what, what David knew God was and that God was to him. That God is my source, that God is my standard, that God is my strength, and God is my salvation. God is my source. No one else is. In Psalm chapter 55, verse 22, David wrote this. Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. He will sustain you. He will be your source. He will bring sustenance to you. He will sustain you. He will provide everything that you need every step of the way. No one else can do that for you. No one else will do that for you. But when you look to the Lord, when your fear, fear of the Lord overcomes your fear of man, the Lord will be your source. The Lord will sustain you. Not your parents, not your in-laws, not your boss, not the people in your community, not the people in your neighborhood, not the people that you're trying to spend all your time with. At the end of the day, those are all relationships that are great to pursue. They're relationships that are great to build, but they're not worth your whole life. God is worthy of your whole life. He is your source. He is your sustainer and no one else and nothing else is. And so in the moments where you're tempted to think, well, I have to do this for work because they control my financial future. I have to do this for this person because they control my financial future. And if I don't have a financial future, I don't know how we put food on the table. At the end of the day, they are not in control of your financial future. They are not in control of if food is on your table. God is in control of your financial future, and he is in control of what is on your table. He is your source. God is also my standard, meaning I live for his approval and no one else's. I do not need the approval of man. It's great if I get it, but I need the approval of God like I need air. John chapter 5, verse 30, this is the one that, that, that David didn't write. This is speaking about Jesus. This is actually Jesus' words. In John chapter 5, verse 30, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. 
Jesus knew he was living for an audience of one. He was not living for his own approval. He was not living for the approval of his disciples. He was not living for the approval of the Pharisees. He was not living for the approval of the masses. He was doing miracles, not for their approval, but because God wanted him to perform miracles. He was speaking and teaching in ways not to win the applause of man, although sometimes he got the applause of man. He was living and speaking and teaching to make sure that people understood what God thought and what and how God wanted people to to. to to, te- to treat each other. This is what Jesus was doing. He said, I live in everything I do, every miracle, every word I say, everything I do, everywhere I go, it's because I'm living for the approval of my heavenly father because that's all that actually matters. He's the standard, not their standard. He's the standard, not their judgment. He's the standard, not their approval. I want his approval and that's the end. And that's the end game. I want his approval. And so some of us, we're desperately trying to win the approval of a parent, trying to win the approval of an in-law, trying to win the approval of a boss. And at the end of the day, you can get their approval and you still need more. You need the approval of your heavenly father. You live for his standard, not their standards. You live for his standards, not the standards of this world. You don't try to win the success standards of this world because the success standards of this world are constantly shifting and constantly moving and will be here today and gone tomorrow. The only standard that matters is the standard that matters for eternity, which is what our heavenly father thinks of us. Next, God is my strength. No one else is. No one else is strong enough to sustain you. No one else is strong enough for you. God is my strength. No one else is my strength. Psalm 28, verse 7 and 8. David wrote, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy and with my song, I praise him. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. God is my strength. No one else's. I think I have to, I, I, I can't tick this person off. I can't say the wrong thing to this person. I can't be rejected by this person because they're the thing that I've leaned my life against. And if you've leaned your life against anything else, I'm just telling you, that thing will eventually fall and will eventually fade because they were never meant to be the strength of your life. God is the strength of your life. He is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. When you think, I can't do this, I can't be rejected by them, I can't say what ultimately needs to be said because they'll leave and my life is leaned on them. You need to lean your life on someone who will never leave. You need to lean your life on someone who is strong enough to sustain the weight of your life. And finally, God is my salvation. God alone saves, no one else can. In Psalm 27, verse one, David wrote this, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And amazingly, David wrote this about the salvation of the Lord about a thousand years before Jesus would actually walk the earth, before salvation would come for everyone, everywhere, for all time that nothing else and no one else can save. Your good works can't save you. Your good reputation can't save you. Saying all the right words can't save you. Never being rejected by a group of people can't save you. Jesus saves. Our God saves. The Lord is my light and my salvation. So whom shall I fear? This is how we overcome the fear of man. We remember who God 
is, that only God is worthy of our life, that only God is worthy of our fear. And because we fear God, we have no reason to fear anyone else because God is our source, because God is our standard, because God is our strength and God is our salvation. What no one else and nothing else can do for us, God did, God does, and God will do for us us. He is our source. He is our standard. He is our strength and he is our salvation. And he will be that for you in this moment and in every moment to come. As you look past the fear of man to the God who is worthy of your life. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are so good. Thank you that you have given us a picture of what it looks like to be dominated by the fear of man. God, help that to never be true of us again. But God, for those of us who it has been true of us at moments in our lives, or maybe it's true of us right now, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to recognize what is true about us right now. God, help us to see in the ways in our lives that we may actually be dominated by the fear of man. And God, help us to face up to it and to realize the reality of life that you are our source, no one else is. That you are our sustainer, no one else is. That you are our strength, no one else is. That you're our savior and no one else is. Help us to fear you more than we fear man. Help the fear of man to shrink in the light of who you are and what you've done and what you have to do and what you are doing for us right now. Help us to remember you as our source. Help us to remember you as our strength. Help us to remember you as our standard and help us to live for you as our salvation. We love you, God, and we pray that knowing you for who you are and recognizing you for who you are would overcome any fear of man that we might face. We love you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.